Good morning. My name is Claire Johnson. This morning's passage comes from Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. It can be found on page 894 in the Black Chair Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat. He called the disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, and some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered him, where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? How many loaves do you have? He asked them. Seven, they said. He commanded the crowd to sit down on the ground. Taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. So they served them to the crowd. They also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he said these were to be served as well. They ate and were satisfied. Then they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 were there. He dismissed them, and he immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and went to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Then he gave them strict orders. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. Aware of this, he said to them, why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? Twelve, they told him. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to them, don't you understand yet? This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. All right, Gospel of Mark, I'm so grateful for uh, this book. I've enjoyed it. I hope you've been enjoying it. Uh, I was thinking this past week uh, how life as a child was so much simpler, so much uh, easier, at least uh, from my perspective. All I'd need really was a bag of Doritos, a couple friends, a MC Hammer tape deck, and my Nintendo. And I was good to go for many moons. Those are the things that satisfied me. Those are the things that brought me happiness as a child. And as we would get older and become teens, of course, we were going after other things. Maybe it was athletic accomplishments or academic accomplishments uh, or good grades, you know, things like that. Maybe a car even or a significant other. And then we become adults and life gets even more complex. We become more complex ourselves. And and so we think maybe a house or a child or a particular career will kind of quench that thirst in our souls. But friends, if we're honest, we're still left wanting more, aren't we? Do you remember that famous Rockefeller quote? Somebody asked him, how much money will make a man happy? And he said, just one more dollar. Just one more. 
whether it's people or possessions or posterity or pay, we will never find soul relief if we continue to seek things outside of Jesus. That's kind of like chasing after the wind. And the problem, of course, is that we are voracious black holes of discontentment. We devour relationships and possessions and career advancements and money and whatever else it might be. All the while thinking to yourself, thinking to ourselves, excuse me, you know, I think I could use more. (laughs) We are always eating but never satisfied. Always consuming but famished. So friends, let me ask you this question. I'm going to ask this question several times this morning. Are you satisfied in Jesus today? Are you satisfied in Jesus alone today? And will you be tomorrow? Will you be later this week as the stuff of life starts to creep in? What keeps you from being satisfied in Christ? Well, friends, that's what the sermon is about this morning. Here's the main point. You'll see it up on your screen. Feast on the bread of life and leave aside the leaven of unbelief. Now, if you're using your notes in the bulletin, you'll notice, oh, that's a little different than what I see here. Scratch out that last part. Here's the updated main point. Sometimes it takes until Friday or Saturday to get it right, you know. So again, feast on the bread of life, who is, of course, Christ, and leave aside the leaven of unbelief. Our two points are going to flow right out of that main uh, section, or main point, excuse me. Our first one is feast on the bread as we look at verses 1 through 10. Now, before we dive in, you have to know that what is backdrop to this passage is something that actually occurred in the Old Testament with the exodus and the wilderness journey that ancient Israel took. And there's a lot of similarities between that story and what we see in front of us here in verses 1 through 21. Israel and the disciples, they were both hungry. Israel and the disciples are both in the wilderness, in desolate places. Israel and the disciples are provided for by God. And we're going to see other connections as well. So as you put your eyes on these first 10 verses, as we're considering the feeding of the 4,000, you might be thinking to yourself, well, gee whiz, haven't we seen this before? Is this just round two, uh, another hungry crowd, another example of Jesus' power? Wonderful. I think we've got that. Let's move on. Well, no, there are some key differences in this story, and I want to point those out to you. First of all, remember, Jesus is now in Gentile lands. He's in the Decapolis. There's no indication that he's left this region. In fact, it appears he's continuing to teach in that region for three days. In the opening couple of verses, we see that, or it's at least implied. The first miraculous feeding involved the Jews, 5,000 of them. This one likely involves mostly Gentiles. And so this flows right out of last week's passage, doesn't it? When we saw a woman recognize that Jesus offers his feast not only to the kids, but to the dogs. Not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. So what do we have here in front of us right on the heels of this parable? Well, the dogs are getting the crumbs. The Gentiles are joining the feast. Before Jesus are men and women who are awakened by his presence, who are awakened by the teaching of Jesus, who are hungry to listen to him. In fact, that's why they're there for three days. But they're also physically hungry. And so he feeds them. 
You know, the people are hungry, notice, and they put their need for food beneath their desire to be with Jesus and hear him teach. Three days, friends, three days they've been with Jesus. And Jesus isn't upset with kind of their reckless devotion. They put Jesus first. In Mark chapter 3, when Jesus calls his 12 disciples, the narrator says the first mark of being a disciple is simply to be with him. And that's what the crowd is doing here. They're with Jesus. Friends, do you believe that if you put Jesus first, he will have compassion for you? Isn't that what we see here with these crowds? If you look to Jesus, he will look out for you. Or to put it in Jesus' words elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, seek first his kingdom and all these other things will be added to you. Now, I find the disciples' question in verse 4 rather funny. You see verse 4, his disciples answered him, where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? I mean, goodness, where could... <laughs> Gee whiz, Jesus, I mean, where are we going to get bread to feed all these people? You know, it's as if Jesus has used his men in black memory wipey thingy. Remember that thing? So it wipes their, their memories clean, you know, before that the 5,000 Jews were fed, right? But they've forgotten did that not leave an impression? You know, how could they so quickly forget? Apparently, witnessing a miracle isn't enough. You know, sometimes we think, you know, if God could only do this big thing, this one thing, this miraculous thing, convert my prodigal son or remove this woman's tumor. But what's interesting is that no one in the Gospels questioned the authenticity of the miracles themselves. They questioned the authority behind the miracles. So these miracles mean nothing unless you have the greater miracle of faith to believe Jesus, the miracle man. The disciples are supposed to see Jesus more in these miracles. Doesn't seem like they are. But compassionate Jesus, of course, he carries on, he pushes forward, he uses what they have and the food that they have, and he shows hospitality. Notice to the crowds, he asks them to sit, he gives thanks for the food, and then the disciples start distributing the bread and, and some fish, and notice all 4,000 ate and were satisfied. In fact, there were even Tupperware leftovers, you know, that they can kind of tuck away in the fridge, right? I think it's possible that the 12 baskets, this is leftover from the 5,000, the 12 baskets from that previous miraculous feeding of the Jews represented the 12 tribes of Israel, what about the seven here with the Gentiles? Well, it might be, the, might be seven, the number of completion, indicating that now the breadth of the mission is kind of clearly defined and completed, right? So it's Jew and Gentile. That's a possibility. Or it may indicate the number of Gentile nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Jebusites, not the mosquito bites. So that's possible, I guess. But the point stands. Jesus is feeding and satisfying all kinds of people. So the woman from last week was right. It's, it's not just the Jews who get the meal. The Gentiles are invited to the feast as well. They get to experience Jesus' compassion. They receive his hospitality. They are given a miraculous sign about his identity as God's son and savior. They too are offered the kingdom. And friends, I want you to think about this. The recipients of this, this gospel narrative was likely the Roman church. They were a mix of Jew and Gentile. How this story must have comforted those pagan, 
unreligious Gentiles. Oh, wow. We can, we can come to the feast. Like we're invited, we're, we're, we can come to the table alongside the Jews. And how this might have challenged those religious, possibly self-righteous Jews who've always been part of God's people. They're the chosen people, the chosen nation. Oh, this must have challenged some and encouraged others. So let me ask you this question as we're thinking about application. Friends, is there a place in your heart that gets fired up about the gospel going to new people groups? Part of your satisfaction in Jesus is deriving great joy and pleasure from others being satisfied in Jesus. Because Jesus is interested in satisfying peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation, isn't he? He's offering the kingdom to everyone, to anyone, to all who call upon the name of Jesus. Well, do we share that same perspective? Think about the book of Acts with me. What happens as the early church starts to explode onto the scene? Do they kind of keep things insular and, and situated only in Jerusalem? No, right? From the very beginning, Jesus' intention was for the gospel to go far and wide. In fact, his last words to his disciples, the same guys in this story, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, hey guys, wait, wait for the Spirit. When the Spirit comes, you're going to have power to be witnesses first in Jerusalem, first in Cincinnati, but then also in, in all of Judea and even Samaria, right? That's kind of like all of Ohio and then even Michigan, you know. And Jesus says, to the ends of the earth. So, so what is he talking about? What are we talking about here? We're talking about missions. Do you know who Faith Church's first ever missionary that we've sent from within our churches? Anyone? Oh, I know some of you now. You just start shy to raise your hands, perhaps. So it's Scott and Sherry Stober, right? And if you know their story, it's, it's, it's awesome. I mean, you've heard about their decades-long investment in the Mato people in Papua New Guinea, where there's no established church. There's no Bible in their native, native tongue when they first arrived there. And so they shared the gospel as well as their lives with this Gentile people group. And over time, they saw conversions, miraculous conversions, and, and a small church would begin to form. In March of 2019, we, Faith Church, we celebrated the New Testament translated for this Mato people. We sent some members of our church to go overseas to, to, to help this Mato people in their village celebrate this New Testament as it was coming to them in physical form for the first time. This is incredible spiritual victory, isn't it? I'll tell you what, what the, the, the Mato people are nothing like us. Some of you have seen pictures, you know, you see their clothing or you get to know their food or their mannerisms, of course, their language. They're nothing like us. And yet, in another way, they're everything like us, right? They're sinners, check, just like us. They're hungry and desperate and in need of a Savior, Jesus, check, just like us, right? The gospel sort of levels the playing field, doesn't it? Whether you're Mato or Tamil Indian or Sunda Indonesian or Welsh or Bengali, the gospel is for all kinds of people. And so friends, what this means for us is that we must widen our gaze across the globe. And so I just kind of wonder, is this your heart? Is this your heart? Do you, do you have a global vision for what God intends to do with his kingdom? Or is your Christian life rather small and insular? I don't get excited beyond my church and my Bible study and my friends. And 
is there some way for us to be connected to God's work beyond just ourselves, beyond just our church? Let me give you just three quick applications, okay? Pray, give, and go. Pray, give, and go. So you can get in touch with one of the pastors or elders or Gina Sprague who kind of oversees and helps to lead the missions committee, and there's others too, and, and ask us, uh, who are some of these missionaries that our church is supporting overseas? Who are some of the men and women who are trying to make disciples and plant churches and strengthen churches overseas? How can we pray for them as a, as a family? Maybe once a week you can do that as a family. You can also give. You've probably heard this before. 20 cents of every dollar you give here at Faith Church goes to our missions budget. And from that missions budget, a bunch of, bunch of the support, of course, goes to overseas missions work. And then lastly, you can go. You can go. You can uh, find ways to go and strengthen these disciples and disciple makers and churches. So Jesus has laid this veritable feast before us. Uh, And this is kind of what we receive even in the 21st century. Right now, the people of God in the church are nourished and strengthened by Jesus. And so we're meant to see here that Jesus provides for his people not only physically, but spiritually. He sustains us. Not only does Jesus bring manna from heaven, he also is the manna from heaven. In fact, it's from the passage we read earlier this morning in John's Gospel, chapter 8. Listen to how Jesus declares himself to be the bread of life. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. He's talking about after the Exodus event, they're in the wilderness, Exodus 16 and 17, and and God's providing bread, manna from heaven for his people to sustain them. Jesus continues, For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Huh. Seems like now Jesus is kind of talking about manna, but now he's talking about maybe a person that's coming. And so they respond, sir, give us this bread always. Like, I don't know what exactly you're talking about. Whatever it is, it sounds really good. Give it to us. And Jesus says this, listen, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. And no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Friends, it's not something external to himself that Jesus offers that will appease our hunger. It's Jesus himself. It's the bread of life that satisfies Jesus and Jesus alone. What the nations need is what you and I need too every single day to feast on Christ who is the bread of life. So let me ask you that question again. Are you satisfied in Christ? Is your life marked by a penchant for being thrilled and wooed and delighted by Jesus above all other things? Is your thirst quenched? Is your hunger satisfied by Jesus alone? You know, this miracle of bread that we see in front of us isn't designed to pull these disciples to to, to, to the bread. It's designed to pull these disciples to Jesus, right? So don't be enamored with just the gifts. Be enamored with the giver. He who gives you life in all things. So what does it look like then to feast on Christ? Well, it begins when you become a Christian, when you're converted, when the Spirit regenerates your life. One of the things the Spirit gives you is the ability, a a hunger, a new appetite for Jesus. So that's when it begins. But, okay, we're Christians now. What happens now? What does it look like practically for Christians to feast on Christ? Well, I think we feast on Christ every time we trust 
and enjoy and believe and are fulfilled by Jesus. I want you to think about this with me. In Christ, every need you have is met. Sin and shame and a seedy past, what am I going to do with this? Jesus provides forgiveness and honor and family. Well, what about physical presence and friendship and relationship? Well, Jesus provides you his body, the church. What about love and and a sense of worth and identity? Well, Jesus provides you steadfast covenant love and gives you a new identity in him, which is far greater, far more significant, far more substantial than your identity as a man or woman, your sexual identity, all these other identities that we kind of give ourselves to and, and submit ourselves to. Jesus gives us a new identity in himself and makes us a son and daughter. And you say, Pastor, well, what about a secure future? What about a bright future for myself, for my family? Jesus has purchased, excuse me, has purchased eternal life with his own blood for you, for all who are in Christ. And what about your ultimate need? And you're thinking, wait a second, God, when I thought like forgiveness is my ultimate need. Well, yeah, I mean, we need forgiveness and we need Jesus to be a shield you know, from the, the wrath and judgment of God that comes against sinners. And all these things are true, but we sometimes forget that the goal of salvation is to be with God, right? The goal of the gospel is God, is to get us to God, right? It's to get us back to the garden and where we're walking freely and fellowshipping freely and enjoyably with God the Father. Well, friends, Jesus gets you to God. That's what he does. So friends, you feasting on Christ as you believing these things, enjoying these things, being fulfilled in these things day after day. So brothers and sisters, if there's some measure of discontent in your soul today, I don't know all of your circumstances. Perhaps you're living under harsh circumstances right now. Your life is difficult and painful. Whatever that discontent might be, whatever that restlessness might be in your soul right now, let me encourage you to feast on Christ. That's the first point. The second one, as we're looking at verses 11 through 21, is leave aside the leaven of unbelief. Leave aside the leaven. Now, in this section, what we see is what happens when we don't feast on Christ. We start to see what the barriers are to feasting on Christ. We see them personified in the Pharisees as well as in the disciples. We aren't left hopeless, thankfully, because while Jesus condemns the Pharisees, he works with the disciples, as we'll soon see. He encourages them forward. So we can put ourselves in their shoes. We are a lot like these disciples. So what happens? Well, Jesus gets in the boat, and he goes back into Jewish territory. He's been, you know, in Gentile territory. He gets in the boat, he goes back into Jewish territory. And of course, who's waiting for him there? Back in chapter 7, right, it's, it's this this long-standing argument that he's had with the Pharisees and things were kind of tense and hot. And so he leaves and he gets in a boat and he goes to Gentile territory and he finds all these soft hearts, right? People that are responding to his teaching and message. Well, now he gets in the boat and he goes back over to Jewish territory and there's the Pharisees and they argue with Jesus and they want a sign. They demand a sign. They're trying to test Jesus. This is just like Israel in the wilderness. This is where hard hearts lead to. To such a disbelief about God that you will test him. Find God. Prove yourself to me. Show me. This isn't from a place of humble faith, rather a place of hardened pride. Brothers and sisters, 
Soft hearts trust God. Hard hearts test God. And notice Jesus in verse 12, he sighs deeply again here. This time it's not like his sigh of understanding or compassion with the deaf and mute man. He's not grieving with the Pharisees. He's actually grieving because of them, right? Because of their unbelief. Because here's the deal. We must remember, you got to think about Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. It starts back in chapter 1. Jesus has already sent a healed leper to the Pharisees as a sign. So they should have known. They should have believed. Hey, here's the Messiah. God's doing something new. But instead, their hearts start to get harder towards Jesus. And just two chapters later in Mark chapter 3, they attribute Jesus' work of exercising a demon to Satan. So much unbelief, right? Talk about adventures and missing the point. My goodness. Well, Jesus doesn't play ball. He doesn't give them a sign notice. The time for signs has passed. So he pronounces this kind of judgment over them. Jesus isn't there, isn't under their judgment. They are under his judgment. They try to put God on trial. He puts them on trial. Well, then what happens? Well, notice verse 13. He promptly leaves to go back into Gentile territory. He's like, I don't want to deal with these jokers. And after all, I mean, there were soft hearts over in Gentile territory, right? What do we learn from this? Soft hearts receive divine help. Hard hearts, they not only test, but they receive divine judgment. So friends, which side are you on here in our story? Regardless of whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, may I just encourage you this morning to keep your heart soft towards God. Regardless of your present circumstances, your past hurts, your difficulties, the strains and stresses of your life, I want you to know this. Jesus works with those whose hearts are soft. He works with those whose hearts are soft. Reminds me of that great verse in in the, in the book of James. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. He resists these arrogant Pharisees, but he gives grace to those who have soft and supple hearts. Do you have a soft heart towards the Lord today? I hope so. So, they get in a boat. Lots of good things happen when you're in a boat with Jesus. Here we are. What happens? Well, notice verses 14 through 16. The disciples had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Then he gave them strict orders. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. I find this just hilarious. I mean, this is a comical scene, right? Disciples are looking for bread. Oh, no, we've only brought one loaf. Hey, we've only got one loaf, Jesus. Or, you know, who forgot the bread? Andrew, did you forget the bread? I don't know. Maybe Matthew forgot the bread, right? We don't know. And Jesus starts to teach this object lesson about leaven and yeast and bread. We know that a little yeast goes through all the bread and makes it rise. We see this again in the Exodus event, right? God gives Israel instructions about how they're going to leave Egypt. They're to have this meal, uh, and they're going to eat unleavened bread. And leaven in the Old Testament represents sin and unbelief, the Egyptian life, bad company. And so just a little bit of leaven makes a huge difference. That's kind of the object lesson here. And so Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Beware the sin, beware the the unbelief, the pride. Such a common thing, isn't it? A common temptation. 
And it's like a poison. One little drop can take you out. The Pharisees, as we've noticed, are full of pride. What about Herod? Well, Herod in chapter 6, he thought Jesus was John the Baptist after seeing God do some things. And so he thought Jesus had come from God. And so, okay, maybe he's a little closer, but he still came to the wrong conclusion about Jesus, didn't he? So both Pharaoh and Herod miss Jesus's true identity, which is the whole point of Jesus's earthly ministry. Everything he did was intended to demonstrate that he truly is God's son, the Messiah. The Pharisees and Herod, they didn't get it. But friends, apparently neither did the disciples. I mean, I, I, again, I just find this comical, right? So they're in the boat, and they get in the boat, and they're like, all right, where's the bread? Who's got the bread? Oh, you forgot to bring the bread. Why did you forget to bring the bread? And Jesus interrupts them. Hey, guys, I got a one-sentence sermon for you, you know. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and, the, and, and Herod. And they're like, cool, cool, cool. Thanks, thanks, Jesus. Great. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. But where's the bread? Where's the bread? I need bread, right? I mean, it's just, it's, it's absolutely bonkers what's going on here. You were supposed to bring the bread. Someone's supposed to bring the bread. Where's the bread? You know, preachers <laughs> work all week on their sermon. They get up and preach their hearts out. Sometimes they're sweating, you know, starts to drip down their temples. I'm not sweating right now. And then, you know, in the car on the way home, Heather turns to Billy and says, was that a new shirt Pastor was wearing? You know, like, and I'm kind of poking at you a little bit. I've been there too, right? We all have. The disciples are concerned about bread. I mean, after he's fed 5,000 Jews and now 4,000 Gentiles, you think that they would cross bread off the worry list, right? I mean, it seems like Jesus can take care of bread, especially for just 12 or 13 people. Jesus has got bread covered. They should have known by now. Think about what they've seen so far, the signs they've seen, Jesus healing dozens, exercising demons, walking on water, and yes, these miraculous feedings. They should know that the man in the boat isn't just a man in a boat. What about us? Do we know that the man in a boat is not just a man in the boat? Almost the identical thing happens with Israel in the wilderness after they leave Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land. And, you know, what have they seen so far? Oh, I don't know, just a bunch of crazy plagues that's designed to pry them out of Pharaoh's hand and the parting of this great sea so they can walk across dry land, you know, and the destruction of their enemies by the same waters of salvation. Now they're in the wilderness, and what do they do? They grumble. They complain. They're discontent. Hey, where's the bread? And Moses, the narrator, describes Israel's heart as being hard, unbelieving, entitled, forgetful. How could they forget? Sometimes hardness of heart can look like the Pharisees, kind of the hardness of pride. But hardness can also come from being distracted and forgetful. Now consider that, friends. It's not just your arrogance that can harden your heart. It's your ho-hum laziness. I'm just going to kind of skim my Bible this morning. I know I'm supposed to check that box, so yeah. I guess I'll go to church. Yes, we'll see. Yeah, I'm going to jump into my community group uh, discussion. I'm going to be listening a little bit, but I might check out a little bit because I'm really tired. All these different moments and opportunities for you to hear from God. 
A hard heart can come from a lack of thoughtful, intentional focus on how God is presenting himself to you. How he's shown himself and how he continues to show himself as faithful to you over and over again. So what does Jesus do here with his disciples? He asks a series of questions. Notice starting in verse 17, seven questions. Let me read them to you. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? Twelve, they said. When I broke the seven loaves for the 40,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven. And he said to them, don't you understand yet? These disciples have seen the bigger thing provided. Why don't they trust for the smaller thing now? You know, the simple answer is, is that they don't actually fully know who Jesus is. Not yet, at least. It's a growing faith that we see here, but it's only marked by but it's also marked by a strong strand of unbelief. You know, Mark's gospel is densely packed by all of these miracles, right? Even before this story, there's a miracle of opening up a deaf man and a mute man to, to, to healing. And, and after this story, we see more healings. But we learn that there's a more important miracle than unplugging ears and opening up eyes. It's the miracle of unplugging our spiritual ears. There it is. And opening up our spiritual eyes, right? It's the miracle of faith. It's a miracle of faith. You can have eyes, you can have ears, you can have a heart, but you may not truly see and hear Jesus. You might have a hardened heart. And I think the end of verse 18 nails it. Jesus' question, do you not remember? And this is what led to their hardness. This is what leads to our hardness as well. We fail to bring to mind regularly the massive interventions, God's incredible provisions you know, we have a faithful father, and he provides for us, right? And when we forget these things regularly, our hearts will grow hard and stiff and cold and sterile. You know, half the counsel I give to doubting Christians in my office or at a coffee shop is basically that question. Do you not remember? Do you not remember what God has done for you in Christ? Think about all the times we miss this and start to grumble like ancient Israel, even like these disciples. Hey, where's the bread? I don't know, but the bread maker's in the boat, you know? We're like the disciples, aren't we? We get distracted so easily. We ask the wrong questions. We have the wrong concerns. And yet we've been given enough, enough signs to trust Jesus. We've seen Jesus do big things in the scriptures, but also in our lives. I mean, we read all the stories, the story of the ark and, and you know, God saving Joseph and God saving Daniel and so forth. And, and so we see God doing these mighty deeds and we give them a sort of intellectual nod. Of course, I believe. But friends, do I really believe? Do I really believe? Why, why am I so quick to doubt and grumble? Why am I so quick to a heart that entertains thoughts of discontentment? if I truly believe. We've seen God do countless things, haven't we, friends? Answers to mundane prayers, answers to big prayers, lumps that have disappeared, risky surgeries that have been successful, 
children that are converted, prodigals that return home, prayers that God would sustain a suffering friend, and they turn out, turn out to be a stunning model of joy and perseverance. Sometimes we think God's mighty deeds must be, you know, the, the big stuff, all oh, the, the great awakening of the 18th century, you know, the Welsh revival, maybe Augustine's conversion and how that just kind of put the church on this wonderful trajectory based on some of his theological convictions. Maybe it's the fruit of Billy Graham's evangelistic ministry over the decades. But friends, what about the weeks and the months and the years and every moment that you and I have experienced God's steady blessing and provision and watchful care over you? What about that? Oh, but we're so cynical, aren't we? I mean, he does that for everyone. Christians, non-Christians, they're taken care of. And what about the times he doesn't seem to provide for me? I mean, what about that, Pastor? You know, why did she get this and I didn't? And the leaven starts to show up, and the little grains of yeast start to get planted, little seeds of doubt into our hearts. It starts to take roots. And then the weed of unbelief starts to grow in our hearts like kudzu. Did God really? Did God really say that he would provide for us in his son, Jesus? Did he really say that? Just like ancient Israel needs disciples who had plagues and the Red Sea, parting and walking on water and miraculous feedings, we must look at the bigger thing provided before we can look at the smaller thing needed. What's the bigger thing provided for us today? It's the provision of Jesus, right? It's what we just talked about, the, the bread of life, the savior of sinners, the satisfier of sinners. God's been faithful to give us the Mount Everest of provisions. So we think about the crosses, we think about an empty tomb, as we think about where he's residing right now at the right hand of God, interceding over his church, praying for you and me. This is provision. How much more can we trust him to provide the smaller things? Romans 8, 32 captures this so well. The Apostle Paul, listen to his words. He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us all things? All things. He's given you the bigger thing. You can trust him for the smaller thing. So next time we're short on bread, you know, whatever that might be, don't grumble. Don't get anxious. Just worry about being in the boat with Jesus. He's going to worry about the rest. We can apply this line of thinking further, you know, because God knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust, according to Psalm 103. We are frail. We need help remembering. And so God institutes some, some particular remembrances to help his people. For Israel, it was the Passover meal, the feast of the unleavened bread. And the intention was to help them to remember. Well, what about for us? under the new covenant? What's going to help you and me to remember God's faithfulness? What's going to help us to leave aside the leaven of unbelief? We have a worship service. Open up your bulletin right now and turn to, to the page that says, Today's Gospel Liturgy. I'm so thankful for every element in our worship service that serves you and me, that gospels us, right? We have this service that's designed to remind you of the gospel. If you turn the the page sideways, it says creation, fall, redemption, restoration, or we could say God, man, Christ, response. 
Every week I come here, I'm reminded of the gospel. Every week I come here, I'm encouraged to confess my sins and needs and burdens and laments to God. And then there's a word of assurance and comfort and encouragement. What a gift we have. We also take the Lord's Supper each week, right? Which pushes us to bring to mind Christ's sacrifice for sinners. Every week, week after week, it says to us, the Lord's Supper says to us, here is Mount Everest. Here is the bigger thing provided for you. So feast, taste and see that the Lord Jesus is good. Soften your hearts and believe. We aren't only remembering in isolation, you know, like in our minivans as we're listening to newsboys, you know. We're participating together here at Faith Church as we take the Lord's Supper. We're feasting together. There's something comforting about that, isn't it? We can do this in our relationships as well. It's, it's all too easy to be like the disciples in the boat. God's word is right here in front of us. Jesus is speaking to you together in the boat. We're all here, but you start talking about the wrong things. You know, your friend at church seems to be unusually emotional after service. You proceed to ask him about where he's watching the Bengals game. Where's the bread? Where's the bread, Jesus? What if you started talking about the right things in those moments? Friends, the good news is that the distracted disciples of Mark 8 can become the focused disciples of of Acts chapter 2. Jesus changed them, and he can change you too. So sure, spend some time talking about playoff football. I'll probably be doing that in the lobby with a couple of you today. But don't forget the bigger concern that we have as Christians. How can you help your brothers and sisters Remember Everest. How can you help them keep their hearts soft towards God? How can you help a a loved one who is struggling with a smaller need in front of them to remember the bigger thing already provided for them in Christ? The most profound narrative that should rule your life, that should rule your thoughts, is I was lost, but now I'm found. If we can just let that sink more and more and more, into our psyches, well, we can approach every day confidently, faithfully. Friends, our God is the great provider. He is faithful. He defines faithful. And oh, that we would be a church whose anthem would resound through the decades, well past our own lives, and that we as a church today and 50, 100 years from now, if the Lord tarries, that we would declare together, great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Amen. Let's take a moment to ponder this passage.